as Molly was praying, I just leaned over and I hugged my wife. And uh, she didn't hug me back. It's tough, babe. It's tough. I love singing the hymns to y'all. I just love the robust theology, the sound doctrine. I love the, the poetic speech. No tongue can bid me, bid me thence depart. You don't talk that way, do you? You should. You should. Do that at the house. Some, somewhere tonight, work that into conversation. No tongue can bid me thence depart. Say that around the house or the Christmas party. No tongue can bid me thence depart. I'm not mocking. I'm not hating. I'm not scoffing. I really do. I love the hymns. I love the violin. Come on now. Good stuff. Yep. Well, if you want to irritate somebody that's not doing well, not having a good day, not having a good stretch, walk up to them this time of year and just say to them, actually sing to them, it's the most wonderful time of the year. There are kids jingle belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer. It's the most wonderful time of the year. And keep going. Talk about parties. No, don't clap. Talk about parties for hosting and marshmallows for toasting. You know, just keep going and you will irritate them. It's, it's one of the most irritating sounds in the world. It's like Jim, and, Jim Carrey and Dumb and Dumber, right? The most irritating sound. Nails on a chalkboard. Just sing a song of good cheer. Because for some of us, and I don't know if we're talking minority, majority, but for some of us, it's the most wonderful time of the year. But for many of us, it's not. It's hard. And this is the season where our, highest, our high points are at their highest and our low points, guys, are at their lowest. And we're doing a three-week series called Holiday Hang-Ups, not Holiday Hangovers. There's a difference. We're talking Holiday Hang-Ups. Uh, it's the most wonderful time of year, except when it's not. And we want to speak into those of you who feel like the, the last part of that, except when it's not. And we've, uh, we're going to look at some dominant emotions, some things that plague us, that vex us, that bring pain in our lives, stress, when we, when we say that we're stressed, when we say that we're lonely, and when we say that we are afraid. And today we're going to look at stress. So give me a moment. I want to sound just for a moment like a happy, peppy, motivational speaker. Stressed is desserts spelled backwards. Now shouldn't we all just go have a piece of pecan pie and just call it a day? Does that mean anything? That's, that's pretty cool, isn't it? Unless you're stressed, you're not laughing, right? Stressed is dessert spelled backwards. But stress is not a good feeling. Stressed is when you're here today and you say, you know, I'm doing a lot more running than I am resting. Stressed is when you say, I'm busy. And not only am I busy, but I'm behind. And not only am I behind, I'm buried. And not only am I buried, I am getting close to just being burnt out. Stressed. Stressed. It relates to fatigue, and fatigue can attack you. Fatigue attacks your body. You sleep, you get to bed too late, and you wake up too early, and you fuel yourself for the day with coffee and donuts in the morning and a Red Bull in the afternoon, and you gorge yourself and clog your arteries with fat food, and you don't make time to exercise. Fatigue attacks your body. Fatigue not only attacks your body, it attacks your mind. You're stressed at work. You're bombarded with information. A bunch of screens, a multitude of screens, of screens scream at you. 
and you walk around with a mental list. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you who are stressed know what I'm talking about. It's a mental list of errands that you have not run, of bills you have not paid, of emails that you have not answered. Fatigue attacks not just your body and your mind, and it attacks your will. The will is that part of you that's your volitional part. It's the part of you that has to make decisions, that has choices in front of you. And it's that part of you that just, it gets fatigued and you're not making a decision. You have a decision, you have something that you need to make a call on and you should have made the call yesterday and you hadn't made the call today and you have no plans to make the call or make the decision anytime soon and you're stressed. Fatigue vexes you, your mind, your body, and your will. And into this, Jesus doesn't stand up and say, stressed is dessert spelled backwards. He goes a little more substantive with us. And he says this in a very popular passage, Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I want you to notice what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not say, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you a lecture. Jesus does not say, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I've got a book for you. Jesus doesn't say, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you a seminar on seven easy ways to alleviate stress. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, truth to tell, this is the time of year, from Halloween all the way through Valentine's, really, that most Americans pack on the pounds. We love to feast and we love the sweet stuff. And I hope some of you are going to the gym. You know, the Bible says the body is a temple, 1 Corinthians 6. And so you want to honor God through the temple. You want to work out. You guys go to the gym, a lot of you. And you know, there's always a cast of characters um, at the gym. There's the big hulking guy, right, that's there at the bench. And he takes most of the weight in the, in the gym and puts it on the bar and he does multiple reps. And then there's the scrawny person in the corner. You're the scrawny person in the corner. And you look over and you go, how does he, how does he do that? But notice the big hulking guy always has a spotter. A spotter, you know, stands above and behind the person lifting. And the role of the spotter is to say, I want to help you make sure you can handle the weight on the bar. And I think this morning, during this holiday season, when we should be going to the gym... I think Jesus is saying to us, I want to be your spotter. I want to help you handle the weight that you put on the bar. I want to be your spotter. Now, we always want to put verses in their context. We don't want to just throw things up on the screen and kind of have a bumper sticker theology. I want to give you quickly just a little background simply stated that Jesus is speaking into people who obviously are weary. They are straining and they are striving for acceptance, for approval. They are trying to be religious and that's the problem. And Jesus is saying religion is man-made efforts to reach God and it's always limited. It always falls short. And he says to these religious people, to all people, he says, be careful of religion. It just, it's just going to wear you out. And can I say, I pray. I pray that that we would be people who follow hard after God, that we would be people who love, that we would love him, that we would love one another, that we would even love our enemies, that we would love our enemies during the holiday season, that we would love our enemies during the political season, and that we would love well, but that we would love because he first loved us. 
and that we would respond, realizing that every time we initiate, we never really initiate because he initiated with us, and that we would love authentically. That every time you get more than 50 people in a room and it starts to grow, you need structure, you need, you need some procedure, right? You need some laws, if you will. You need some, maybe even some policy because you've got to get organized because you can't have Lord of the Flies. But religion that adds on and adds on and adds on, that's exactly what was happening. These folks, these religious leaders, they weren't being people's spotters. In fact, they were adding to the burdens. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 23, a section of scripture where Jesus issues seven woes. I hope you have room in your theology for Jesus issuing woes. And he never, ever issues woes to the marginalized, to the people that were down and out, to the misfits, to the people that were mocked and ridiculed, that were on the outskirts. He always issued the woes when he issued woes. He issued woes to religious people. And he says this about them. They crush people with unbearable religious demands, and they never lift a finger to ease the burden. Big talkers, people who told people what to do, people who stood on a stage and pointed at people and told them what to do. Don't you, don't you just, you can't trust those people, can you? And Jesus is saying, man, they mean well, and they, man, they know the law, they're meticulous. They're careful with each and every detail. But they crush people because they're adding to it. They're adding a weight that we are not meant to bear. They never lift a finger to ease the burden. We call it religion. It can also be called perfectionism. Perfectionism is this idea, now this isn't, you know, we're not talking about uh, wanting to do better. We're not talking about having a good and godly ambition. We're not talking about not having goals and objectives and going hard after them. But we're talking about just always wanting everything and everybody around you to always be perfect and straining and striving and wearing yourself out for this unattainable goal. And perfectionism, it leads to pressure. There's a show on HBO. Jeff almost texted you this morning and had a clip of the trailer on HBO. I don't recommend it. The language isn't good. I was going to show a one-minute, 20-second clip of the trailer of Trophy Kids, but there's a couple of cuss words in it. I didn't, I didn't trust these guys up in the balcony. They would, they would mute it for me. But I don't know. Have you seen this or heard of this? Trophy Kids? These are parents who are passing their perfectionism on down to their kids. These are parents who are in their kids' faces, and it's just never, ever good enough. And we feel pressure. I want to ask you, do you have to perform? Do you have to deliver? Do you have to produce? Be honest. I feel that way. I'm looking at some students who I think are done before Thanksgiving, but there's a way to pressure that you feel, right? You're going to go back to your homes and you're going to talk to your families and they're going to ask you how you're doing. You're going to try to skirt around it, right? Make it sound better than it is. There's this pressure to perform, to strive, to be who people think you ought to be. Perfectionism leads to pressure, and pressure, when it goes unchecked, leads to sheer panic. And this is what religion can do to people. Because religious people get so concerned about what's happening in the world and the encroachment of godliness, 
of lack of godliness, of ungodliness. They, we get so concerned about this that we start setting up more rules and more standards and judging people more sharply. And it's perfectionism. It's pressure. And it's panic. And can I say, if you're stressed in your marriage and there's fatigue in your marriage, that leads to resentment. If there's fatigue and stress and pressure at work, that leads to bitterness. If there's, if there's fatigue and stress in your religion, that leads to confusion. Because something is, in us tells us that we have a joyful God. We have a God who loves us and who calls us to something different, yet we feel so grim. We feel that there's so much obligation to this thing. And we've made it complicated. Bob Goff, the author of Love Us, tweet, tweeted yesterday. He said, we make love so much more complicated than Jesus did. I want to call us back today to something simple. To the, to the way and to the wisdom of the Jesus way. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. In the Old Testament, God, he rescues and delivers his people the people of Israel who had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. They, the nation of Israel, they bore great pressure in Egypt. They were building pyramids and constructing monuments to pharaohs who thought they were gods on earth. And into this pressure, God delivers. And most of you know, almost all of you know this story. God parts the Red Sea and he provides a direction with a pillar of fire at night, and he not only leads them, he feeds them with manna from heaven, from the skies above. And the people of Israel marching their way forward, the way, the direction that God intends. And do you know the story then? Do you know what happens? They don't do well with their freedom because people, by nature, we don't really get freedom. Especially when you've been enslaved to something or someone. It feels good at first, but then we we regress and we go back to the former way of life. Why? Because we're just insatiable creatures of habit. That's just what we know. And that, though it was evil and vile, though it held us back and caused us to live in defeat, it's just familiar. It's just a rut from which we know to live. And we don't know what to do with freedom. And God intervenes. And as he delivers and redeems and provides, he gives his people law and he gives them structure. And he gives what has become to be among the most famous writings in all the world. He gives the Ten Commandments, and you know the fourth one. It's recorded for us in Exodus 20, and it says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And the word Sabbath, it just means to stop. It means to stop and rest. In order, I have found, in order to stop and rest, and this is a hard one, in order to stop and rest, I have to trust. Do you think Chick-fil-A could make some money on Sunday? Do you think you could? The word Sabbath means stop. But the most fascinating word I find in this passage is the first word, the word remember, because I think God in his genius knew that you would forget. Remember the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. Let it be set apart. Let it be sanctified. Don't forget. Don't forget to do this. Seven days you work, or seven days you have each week. Six of them you work, and one you rest. God gives you and I 365 days out of the year. 52 of them 
or for rest. I did a little study this week on life expectancy. Life expectancy in the United States. Where do you think Mississippi ranks? We're 50, that's right. Again, we're 50. Hawaii is number one, Minnesota is number two, California is number three, Connecticut is number four. So if you're thinking life expectancy, a high life expectancy is related to climate, you see that you're probably wrong, right? Hawaii and California are warm, Minnesota, Connecticut, very cold and frigid. Specifically, I honed in on the part of the country that has the highest life expectancy. It is in a community called Loma Linda, California. Would anyone want to guess why they probably have the highest life expectancy. Loma Linda, California has the highest concentration of Seventh-day Adventist. And if you're a Seventh-day Adventist, you religiously and faithfully honor the Sabbath. Average life expectancy for women and men combined, women live a little bit longer than men, but average age now for men and women combined is 80. So I think God is saying 80 years, 68 rest, or I'm sorry, 68, yeah, no, 68, work, 12, rest, 68, live and love and laugh and work and rip and run and have fun, but 12, rest. You want to guess how much longer the life expectancy is in Loma Linda, California? 12 years. Just giving you stuff to chew on, okay? I'm outside of the Bible here, but just giving you some stuff to chew on. So, you know the fourth of the Tenth Commandments. Do you remember the third law, Newton's third law? For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And it seems to me that maybe God wants to teach us that if you rest and honor him with days on the front end, he may extend days on the back end. And if you cheat that, and you don't honor him with days on the front end, you might, be taking, you might be taking days off the back end. For every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction. For stressed people, for people that are experiencing fatigue in body and mind and will and deep down in your soul, this invitation from Jesus, come to me all who are weary and wilted and worn out. If you're overburdened, if you don't have a spotter, come to me. And I will give you rest. Isaiah chapter 48. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you. Who directs you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river. Your well-being like the waves of the sea. God knows what's best for you. He does. And he knows that you and I, our ten tendency is run, run, run. And God invites people who are stressed, who are overburdened to rest, rest, rest. Can I tell you, it is best for you. And God knows what's best for you. And you can't cheat it. Even when you think you are cheating it. Even when you are cheating it and getting away with it immediately. You will not cheat it and get away with it eventually. God knows what's best for you. Let me give you two emotional, two gauges 
related to stress, two emotional gauges related to stress. The first is that you tend to overreact or underreact to life. Any overreactors? Look at me. You're looking at an overreactor. Ask my family. Right? I am an overreactor at times. Now, God is teaching me to rest and steadying me and stabilizing me and being my security and my safety, and I'm learning from him. But if you overreact to life, you can be short with people. And if you have a short fuse, you might need a long nap. That's worth coming to church today for some of you right there. If you're sitting next to go ahead and nudge him and go, it's, it's worth it. Put some money in the plate today, right? If you have a short fuse, you probably just need a long nap. And then there are people who underreact to life. And I've always, always got to be careful when I get into gender issues. But men, look at me if you're not already. A lot of men look at their devices, not the preacher. Look up at me, men, if you will. Well, woman's number one complaint in relationships, specifically marriage, is that we are passive. And we do not engage as we need to engage emotionally. And if you are underreacting, that means there are decisions that need to be made. That means there's something happening at home or work and you need to make a call. There's a choice to be made and you need to lead and lead well and lead lovingly. And you're putting that off and underreacting to life is when you say, I know I need to do this, but I'm just too tired. And this is an emotional gauge to say that you're stressed and you need to see Jesus as your spotter who gives you the invitation. Second gauge is your activity increases, but your productivity decreases. This is, uh, by way of illustration or metaphor, this is probably the hamster on the wheel. You know, getting after it, getting after it, getting after it, but not really going anywhere. I want to give you note takers two words as we round toward third today and talk about this idea of rest for those who are stressed. The first word is the word anchor. It's the word anchor. The second word is the word quiet. It's that. It's that. It's what you need. Anchor and quiet. Anchor, Hebrew 6. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters into inner sanctuary behind the curtain. I meant to take verse 20 down. Don't worry about verse 20. We'll get into that. We're going to do a whole sermon series on Melchizedek. It's going to be fascinating. We have this hope as what? As an anchor. What does an anchor do? An anchor keeps you from drifting. An, an anchor keeps you from being carried away. An anchor keeps you at worst from capsizing. It's this invitation that when you are not just stressed, but you are overwhelmed and you are drowning, that Jesus wants to be your anchor. Now, Hebrews, a little bit of context. Hebrews was written to Jewish, first century Jewish believers for the most part, really to two groups. The first group, they heard, they believed, and they were tempted to quit. And the writer's saying, Jesus is better, Jesus is greater. That's what Hebrews is about. 
There was another group, they were just sort of adding Jesus to their already neatly categorized religious system. He was just an addendum, a little add-on. And the writer says, Jesus is better and Jesus is greater. Jesus is what you need. He's your anchor. He's the one when you're tempted to be carried away, when you're tempted to drift, when you are drifting, when you don't have something stable and steady and secure, he wants to be your anchor. And here's what I've learned, a little testimony here from the pastor. I've learned there are times I don't want an anchor. I want a helicopter. Because an anchor says, Jesus is going to be with you in the storm, right? An anchor says, hey, you're, you're going to be here. And he's not going to alleviate you in, in all manner from your situation. There's going to be a storm, winds and waves and high water and Jim Cantore with the Weather Channel. And it's going to be tough, right? It's going to be hard. It could be Category 5, but Jesus wants to be an anchor. You're going to stay. There's going to be stuff about your situation that's going to remain the same, but you're going to learn some things about me in the storm. So I don't want an anchor. I want a helicopter armed with Navy SEALs, well-trained Navy SEALs. I guess every Navy SEAL is well-trained. But these well-trained Navy SEALs arrive on the helicopter, and they hoist me up, and I'm out of the situation. I want a helicopter. But Hebrews offers me an anchor. It says that Jesus is greater and Jesus is better and he can be an anchor for me. The second word that you wrote down is the word quiet. David is one of my favorite dudes in the Bible. We're going to do a series. We plan to do a series in 2017 on David uh, called just relating to the fact that he's a flawed hero. And David knew tragedy, and David knew triumph, and he was a shepherd boy, and he was a king. He was Israel's most famous king. He was a warrior. He was a soldier. He was a writer. He was a musician. And probably David's greatest legacy, I believe, this is arguable, but I believe David's greatest legacy was not the empire that he built, not the enemies that he defeated, not the laws that he passed, but it was the songs, the songs that he gave us. Here are three passages from the 131th Psalm. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. What does that mean? We'll talk about it. Secondly, I do not occupy myself with things too great and marvelous for me. What does he mean? We'll talk about it. Thirdly, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. David is saying, man, there's, I'm the most popular person in the land. I got the paparazzi. I got the weight of responsibilities around me. And with this kingly status, I'm just, I'm, I'm really no different than the little shepherd boy. I got this promotion. I got lifted high. I'm in the royal palace, but I'm just like the little shepherd boy. And I'm not going to lift up. I'm not going to get proud. I'm going to realize that so much of life is out of my control. It's out of my control. What, is, what, did, what does the proverb say? Man makes his plans, but the Lord orders his steps. There's so much of my life, David is saying, that's out of control. Secondly, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. David is saying that there's a lot of times in life where you not only need to say, it's out of my control, you need to say, I don't know. Now, I got a text from a man on Friday. He wanted to meet with me. He wanted to meet with me on Friday. He texted me on Friday. He wanted to meet with me on Friday. I met with him on Friday. And I know a lot of his journey. And this is a man who's really smart, like really smart. Like I'm afraid to get in a room with him because he's asked me some questions. I don't know the answers to the questions. He's making me feel dumb. And he's really intelligent. 
And he's on this journey and he's just trying to believe. And he's not sure that there's any category that he fits into and he's just trying so hard. And I think of this and I think, you know, if you're going to have a God category, then you're going to need to have a category that says, I don't know. And a lot of people, let me say some people that are stressed, that don't have peace and that don't have rest, are trying to figure everything out, who are trying to be God in essence. And David is saying, man, I'm the king, I'm the head dude, and I just don't know. There are some things I don't even occupy myself with those things because I don't know. And he says, thirdly, but I've calmed and quieted my soul. It's out of my control. So much is out of my control. So much I don't know. And then thirdly, we see here what I call a leveled soul. The very word calmed in Hebrew means to level. It's to level an uneven field. A leveled soul is calm and it's quiet. Another thing I love about David is he had every reason in the world to be stressed, but as he learned from failure and defeat, and God called him a man after his own heart, he learned to be quiet, he learned to be calm. There's this scene for us in 2 Samuel where the Ark of the Covenant that had been missing, which represented the presence of God, had been missing in the land, and it was returned, and David ran into the streets with the people, and he went crazy. Uh, I thought of this, babe, all those years ago, 1997, when there was a World Series and we lived in Miami. We were newlyweds and we had no kids, which means we had a little money. And we lived in Miami and we went to Game 7 of the World Series where Frank Jimenez, our friend, invited us with his Cuban family, very passionate people. We got to go to Game 7 of the Florida Marlins Cleveland Indians and went to extra innings in Game 11. And Jay Powell from Mississippi State, a, a Jackson guy, he came in and he pitched just about an inning and a third or whatever you have to do minimally and he got the win and everybody was going crazy. And in Miami, there's a lot of passion and we were in a, Little Havana and Southwest 8th Street on the street riding a convertible and people were going crazy and Cubans and Puerto Ricans and Colombians and me from Mississippi. And we were just going crazy. And I remember thinking, man, this is, this is some passion. This is celebration. So there's a lot of people, man, they don't care. They were coming out of their apartments and like beating, they had pots and pans and we're just, you know, like we, at least we have cowbells at Mississippi State, right? They had pots and pans just running in the streets and it was pandemonium. At one point we were like, are we safe? Yeah, we're safe. This is good. Everybody's happy. We're hugging and it's a celebration. Well, David is so passionate and so joyous about the return of the Ark of the Covenant that the king takes off his royal robe and he goes into the streets and he celebrates with the people. He takes off his royal kingly robe and he puts on priestly garments. Now it wasn't indecent, but it was undignified. And his wife and some of the people are like, David, you're almost naked and you're acting a fool. And David is like, you know, I don't care. I don't, I'm not going to be too proud. I'm not going to be too popular. I'm not going to be too proper. There is joy in my heart, and I'm going to dance before the Lord. Now, this is not allowed at Fondren Church, okay? But I do want to call your attention to it. Just pure joy. A joy that says, I can find my rest. I will not lift up my eyes. I will not be too proper and too popular and too proud. I will let myself go in worship. Now that's a terribly uncomfortable passage 
for you Presbyterians. But it's in there. Like, you're you're Presbyterians, man, you're conflicted. High view of Scripture, but David danced in the streets almost naked, right? That's tough. It's tough, right? There's a lot of tough stuff in Scripture for all of us. But a soul, a soul that finds its anchor, a soul that is leveled, is a soul that can be loud in celebration, that doesn't care what other people think, that's not about performing and about religion, about checking the boxes. But it's about worship. And as we close, can I say, if you're stressed, there's no better antidote than worship. There is no, no matter how you worship, we worship differently, right? Okay? No matter how you worship, there's no better antidote to a stressed life than worship.